All right, Romans, the gospel of God concerning his son. Our title this morning is What Justification by Faith Brings. Uh, this is the 15th message in this series. It's romans Arama for the rest of this year. And uh, we've gathered 16 chapters. We're now just into chapter 5. And um, so it's, it's, we've got a ways to go. But it's exciting as we move, and we're taking it in bite-sized pieces. We're in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 this morning. Would you stand with me, and let's read it together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's word. You may be seated. Paul begins this really brief passage but a really packed passage with this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What does it mean to be justified by faith? That's where I'd like to begin this morning. And I'd like you to notice a few things um, about this passage. First of all, notice that Paul says we. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Everything Paul says in these first 11 verses of chapter 5 is written in the first person plural, we. To whom is he speaking? Well, he's speaking to believers, isn't he? Those who have transferred their trust from their own performance, their own righteousness, their own morality, their own religion, to Christ. And what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection, his from the dead. And there's there's an observable progressive change. You're saying, why does this matter? Well, just bear with me. because I'm sharing this because I want you to understand the movement of Paul's letter here. There's an observable progressive change in the dominant pronouns that Paul uses in his letter to the church in Rome. In Romans 1, 1 through 17, the dominant pronoun is I. Paul's introducing himself, his ministry, his conviction. From there to the end of chapter 1, it's they. And then in Romans 2 to 4, the dominant pronoun is you. And here in chapter 5, now it's we. And he's going to stay on we here for a good long time. He says, we have been justified by faith. In the original language, the phrase have been justified is in fact just one word. And grammatically, it's in the aorist tense. And you're going, okay, oh, this is so boring. Now he's pulling out the Greek. Bear with me, because this is important to understanding what Paul is saying here. In the, the Greek language, the aorist tense, pay attention to this now, the aorist tense denotes something that took place at a definite time that has continuing effect. It took place at a definite time in history, and it continues in its effect. It keeps flowing. Why does it matter, first of all? It tells us that for those who, of us who have done that transfer of trust from ourselves to Christ, our justification is an accomplished fact. It's done once and for all. We never have to worry about it again. I don't know if you had the experience like I had when I was a teenager. You know, I, I, 
I got saved over and over again. <laughs> it's actually not true. I only got saved once, but I felt the need to get saved over and over again. I, I'd, I'd go to church or I'd go to Christian summer camp and I'd come under conviction of the Holy Spirit and go, oh God, I want to serve you. I want to live for you. I want to walk for, with you and I, I'm going to do it this time and Monday would come. And I'd just blow it, you know. And then I'd keep blowing it. And I blew it all week. And then the next Sunday, I'd come under conviction again. Oh, God. It was bad. (laughs) And I think, how could God love me? How could God forgive me? I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. How can he keep forgiving me? How is that possible? Well, if that describes you as well, then I have some bad news. <laughs> and then I have some good news for you. First, the bad news, you're a sinner. Golly. You're really going to say that? Yep. You're a sinner. You're, you're not going to stop being a sinner. And, 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 and we kind of need to get a grip on that fact. It's not to say you shouldn't stop sinning. You should. But you won't. Because you can't. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. When you transferred your trust from your ability to not sin, from your ability, from your performance, from your capacity to please God, from your morality, your self-defined righteousness, your religion, when you transferred your trust from all that stuff and, and put it over on what Christ accomplished at the cross through his death and his burial and re- his resurrection. Here's what happened. God accepted you. And he forgave you. And he said this about you. He said, you are righteous. I'm declaring you righteous on the basis of what my son Christ did for you and in which you have put your trust. Christ died for your sins. All of them. Past, present, and future. The ones you have committed, the ones you surely will commit, the ones you're sitting there contemplating committing this very afternoon. Someone once put it this way, that sin is everything in thought and in impulse and in word and in deed that is contrary to the will of God. And there's a lot of that going on in our lives, isn't it? So this matter of justification isn't about my performance. I'm a sinner, and Christ is my only Savior. He is my only chance. So it matters for that reason, and then it matters secondly on another level as well. Through the years, I've heard more people than I can count say something like this, well, I've always been a Christian my entire life. I've always been a Christian. I've always believed. False. That's just false. None of us have been Christians our entire lives. None of us have been believers our entire lives. Paul wants us to understand that it was when you put your faith in Christ that God justified you at that moment. And prior to that, you were on the highway to hell. You know, you may have been four years old in preschool, but you were on the highway to hell. 
Hear me now. Justification is not something you feel. If you've transferred your trust to Jesus, then your justification is a fact. God forgave your sin, not through an emotional impulse. God forgave your sin through a legal, judicial act. God the righteous judge, on the basis of your faith in what Christ did at the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, justified you by his grace. So that your sins are forgiven now and forever. If I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's the way God regards me from here on out. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. In Jeremiah 31, as he's describing, as, uh, as the prophet is describing, um, or God is describing through the prophet the covenant that he's going to make through the coming Messiah, who is Jesus, he said, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You say, how can God, the, if, if God is perfect, how can he forget my sins? That's not what it says. It doesn't say God forgets. It says he, he won't remember them anymore which means he doesn't ever bring them up again. Christ died for your sins. He never bring them up again. He won't use them against you. He won't leverage your past failure against you or your present failure or your future failure. He, he will not leverage any of that against you. I will remember, I will not call to remembrance their sins. You see, if the preservation of your salvation depended on you, if mine depended on me, then I'm only as secure as my personal faithfulness. And my personal faithfulness is spotty. That's not security at all. Paul said to the Philippians, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's work from the beginning. He authored it, he conferred it, he thought of it, he, he gave it, and he's perfecting it. And he won't fail to perfect it. He, is, he will be faithful to complete what he began in you. See, when God saves, he saves permanently. When God saves, he saves completely. Nothing's left to be done, nothing is lacking that needs to be added. Should be hearing some amens here or something. Glory, hallelujah. There are three repeated phrases that are kind of key to understanding this passage. They just kind of form the bones or the outline of it. And uh, those repeated phrases are, we have, we have, <laughs> through and through, we rejoice and we rejoice. He talks about and then he makes four great declarations here. And they are declarations of faith, or declarations regarding justification by faith, the outcome of having been justified. And the first one is this, that we have peace with God. 
Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice now, this is not the peace of God. Like Paul talks about in Philippians 4, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about something subjective. He's talking about here an objective fact. That is rooted in the truth that there was a time when God and I were at war. There was a time when God and you were at war. You say, I don't remember that. <laughs> in, in the passage we're going to look at next week, verses 6 through 10 of chapter 5, or 6 through 11 actually next week, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies. You say, I don't remember being an enemy. Well, it's not because you declared yourself an enemy. It's because God declared you an enemy. And if God came and messed in your stuff, then he'd become your enemy. You just didn't know he was messing in your stuff. See, when we disobey God, two things happen. The first thing that happens is that we we not only break his law, but we assume in in that act, we assume the right and the authority to do so. We claim kingship over ourselves and over our world. And there are so many expressions of that. The problem comes in this, that God claims kingship over the same things. He claims authority over you and over your world. And wherever two parties both claim absolute control over something, there is war. The second thing that happens is that our disobedience means that God has a problem with us. It's not just that we are hostile toward him. In Romans 1.18, we read, back in chapter 1, verse 18, we read that God's wrath is now at present being revealed against sinful people behaving sinfully. But God's wrath is not the same as ours. It isn't vengeful. It isn't vindictive. Instead, it's, if you will, legal. It's a legal kind of wrath. There is a just sentence against us because of our sin that cannot be ignored or cannot be washed away. But you and I can never bridge that gap between us and God. We can't reconcile ourselves to God. Peace with God isn't something that we can achieve on our own. That's why earlier Paul wrote that God becomes is just and the justifier of those who trust in him by faith. God was just in that he poured out his wrath on Jesus and not on us. Jesus stood in as our substitute. He died in our place. And, and there he bore our sins. And, and God was just in that. And because, because he exerted his justice on Jesus, we benefit from that because now he justifies those who look to Jesus by faith and trust in his sacrifice for sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul wrote, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen to that, and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's like we had this great big bullseye on our chests, like Target employees, right? I mean, there, there, there it was. 
And, and, and that was the spot. It was right over your heart. God, God had a target on you. You were, by nature, a child of wrath. But God, listen here what he says. One of the great but gods in the scripture, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing love. How can it be? And all that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. So your salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus. He bore your sins in his own body on the cross. And when he did that, he buried them forever. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't bring your sins back with him. They they were buried. He bore, the Bible says, our sins in his body at the cross. And he said, it's finished. It's finished. Justification isn't merely the cessation of hostilities. Justification also means that we now have friendship with God. We're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Which takes us to what Paul says is the next benefit, that we have obtained access by faith into grace. Through him, verse 2, first part of verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, in which we stand. See, this expression, we've, we've obtained access, means to be introduced. It means to be brought near. It means to be admitted into something. And what Paul seems to be saying here is, is that one of the benefits of having been justified by faith is that we have been admitted into the sphere of grace. And it's a great thought because, because in that sphere, now that, now, now that sin has no control over us any longer and, and God never brings up our sin against us anymore, we're free of our sin. We're free of the penalty of our sin. We're free of, of all that blocked us from our relationship with God. We enter into this sphere of grace in which we're free to grow in our relationship with God, unencumbered by sin. Sometimes I'm standing here, I'm saying these things, and I just think, is this so unbelievable, aren't they? I mean, that, that God would love us that much, that he would do all this for us? Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, we have boldness and access with confidence. Boldness and access with confidence. Not, not cowering, not, not groveling, but confidence through our faith in him. The writer to the, of the book of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. As a result, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, it's no longer a, a, a throne of justice. It's no longer the Bema seat, the judgment seat. We come into the presence of God and we come before a throne of grace. And we're able to come any time for any reason. I remember hearing a story when I was just a child, and it, I was just taken by it. It moved me, and I've never forgotten it, of, of Tad Lincoln, the son of President Abraham Lincoln, who, while they were living in the White House, would, would frequently burst into his father's office. And it didn't matter if, you know, there 
international dignitaries or you know who, who what kind of important people were there he would just come blowing into the office jump up into abraham's lap and that has always struck me as the picture that that the writer of the hebrews is painting here that we come boldly we, we come without hesitation and abraham lincoln always welcomed him didn't didn't matter who was there he would he would welcome him into the office and up into his lap and the conversation would go on And again, Paul says that we've obtained access by faith into grace through him, through Christ. It's because of what he did. And then he says, this grace in which we stand. Reminds me of Psalm 3, I'm sorry, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, where where the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could... Stand. But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared, that you may be reverenced, that you may be honored. Who could stand? See, in our sin we can't stand, but in grace we stand. We stand before God. We don't grovel, we don't cower, we don't crawl into his presence. We come boldly and we stand in his presence. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. See, the standing isn't the end product of your salvation. It's, it's just the, the, the status while you're being saved, while, while this work that Christ began in you is being completed, you stand with boldness and with freedom in the presence of God. This means first that our only standing with, with God is by grace. It also means that, that having obtained access by faith into grace, we confidently take our stand there. And then he says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The latter part of verse 2. And I, and I love this picture as well, because the, the root word for rejoice there, in the English Standard Version, which we use, uh, literally means to live with your head up high. The, the root word of is, is neck. It speaks of the neck. That which lifts up your head. And it reminds me of what David said in Psalm 3 when he said, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I don't hang my head in shame anymore in the presence of God. He's the lifter of my head. To live with your head held high is to live with a God-given confidence. When the Bible speaks of hope, it, most of the time, 99.9% of the time, isn't speaking of mere wishfulness. Like we say, we hope the weather gets better, or we hope the Seahawks win, or whatever. But the hope that the Bible speaks of is a certainty. Our hope as Christ followers is a confident and joyful expectation that rests on the promises of God. And the object of our hope is the glory of God, which means his radiant splendor, which in the end will be fully displayed. And already his glory is being continuously revealed in the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19.1, the the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the earth shows forth his handiwork. Already it's been uniquely revealed in Jesus Christ. John tells us, the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. 
glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And his glory is revealed most notably in his death and his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And one day, however, the curtain will be drawn back. (laughs) And the glory of God will be fully disclosed. And first, Jesus Christ himself will appear with great power and glory. And second, we'll not only see his glory, but in seeing it, we will be changed by it, John said. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. We're the children of God. And it doesn't yet appear what we will be, but we know when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him just as he is. We're changed by his glory and then we're changed into his glory. Isn't that amazing? Paul wrote to the Thessalonians saying that when Christ comes on that day, he will be glorified. He will be glorified in his holy people. And then redeemed human beings who were created to be the image of glory and glory of God. But now, uh, because of sin, fall short of that glory. Will again in full measure share his glory. And third, even the groaning creation will be liberated, Paul says, from its bondage to decay and brought into, he says, the glorious freedom of the children of God. The renewed universe will be suffused, will be filled with the glory of God. So on that day when you're looking at a sunset that you just can't believe, that makes you gasp, or when you're looking at mountains that are incredibly beautiful, just remind yourself, it used to be more beautiful before sin, and one day it will be even more beautiful again. All of this and more is included in the glory of God, and that is the object of our hope. It's our confident expectation. So let me just pause for a moment and draw your your attention to something Paul says here, that we we have peace with God as the result of our past justification. He says we stand in grace, which is our current status and our current privilege. And then he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is our future inheritance. And so in this short passage, he's captured the past and the present and the future of our salvation. Isn't that awesome? The next benefit, he says, of our justification by faith is that we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 3. Suffering is a major theme in the New Testament, isn't it? James, for example, wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Some people say, well, rejoicing in suffering, isn't that some kind of sick masochism? You know, you know to, to somehow take pleasure in adversity. Um but that's not what this is about. This is the realization that there is a divine purpose. There's a divine rationale behind suffering. You know, the older I get, um, 
the more I'm convinced of the truth of an expression I heard when I was a child referring to this life as a veil of tears, a valley of tears. And, and, and as I look around my world, as I get older, I just think, yep, that's what this is. This is a, a parenthetical period in God's agenda for the universe. And it's marred by sin. And things are screwed up. You wonder, why, why are things so screwed up? It's because people are screwed up. It's because of sin. And by, the New Testament wants us to understand that suffering is the pathway to glory. It was true for Christ. The writer of the Hebrews says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, brothers and sisters. It's true for, for the followers of Jesus as well. Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. Come to terms with that. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Luke describes part of the ministry of the Apostle Paul as strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Isn't that good? I mean, isn't that the way we ought to relate to each other? As we live this life, when things are messed up and bad things happen, and we wonder, you know, what's what's going on? How could we keep walking in obedience to Christ through through all the mess of life? Shouldn't we be doing that? Shouldn't we be strengthening each other's souls and encouraging each other to continue in the faith? Acknowledging that, yeah, this, things are pretty bad. That shouldn't have happened to you. That shouldn't have happened to your family. God didn't desire that. And then he says, we know we know. What do we know? We know that suffering produces endurance. When Paul speaks of suffering here, he isn't talking about the everyday aches and pains of life, I don't think, although we could throw those into the mix if we wanted to. But I, I think he and the other New Testament writers are speaking of suffering in terms of either outright persecution or the, that ongoing tension between our will and the will of God, the, the suffering that takes place in that Matrix, that dynamic. Whether it's from the daily challenges of living, trying to live in obedience to Christ in a disobedient world, or, or from outright persecution, we're being harassed for our faith, Paul says all of it adds up to strengthen muscles that, that enable you to bear up under the challenges that come your way as you follow Jesus. And as you mature in Christ, you're able to handle more and more and more. Produces endurance. This endurance produces character. And the, the word character here is sometimes, I, as I was studying this this week, sometimes this translated experience. Endurance produces experience. But the, the, the sense of this is that it, it produces a, a proven character that results from having been tested and, and then having proven genuine and authentic and mature. Another place in the Bible says that we're, you know our faith is refined by fire, and and so everything that's that, that's not of the the faith life gets burnt away. 
Then he says character produces hope. That proven experience produces hope because through it all, as we as we experience of all, all of that, we, we've progressively learned that God's word is trustworthy. Uh, and our confidence in his promises keeps growing. And, and we come into a confident expectation that everything that God has promised, he will deliver and he will not fail to keep any of his promises to us. So easy to forget in the midst of it all, but it's true. And then he says, and this is a phrase I've always kind of wrestled with. I've just looked at it and said, that's an odd phrase. He says, hope does not put us to shame. I've looked at that all my life and thought, I just move on. Stop thinking. Just move on. Hope does not put us to shame. And I thought, I'm going to have to explain this in some level. And it took me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, where Paul's talking about the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that if, that if the resurrection didn't happen, then our, our faith is useless. And in that verse, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, <laughs> if the thing we're hoping in proves to be false, we're just screwed. That's basically what he's saying. We're toast. But Paul says here, your hope in Christ will not ultimately become a source of humiliation or disgrace. Why? Because it's true, first of all. And then he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And it's worth noting here that this is Paul's first mention of the Holy Spirit here in the book of Romans. Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, it tells us three things about the Holy Spirit. First, it tells us the Holy Spirit is given to every believer. It's God's gift, without exception. Second, that that God gave the Holy Spirit to each of us at a specific moment. And again, that specific moment was, was when we transferred our trust to Christ and we were justified by faith. And the Spirit of God at that moment came and took up permanent residence in your life. Never to leave. And the third thing is that part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to do this, to pour out God's love into your heart. And the word Paul uses here to talk about that pouring out is, means an initial, an initial outpouring that remains and increases into a permanent flood. That the the love of God just keeps flooding your heart. When I was a kid, we used to sing a a song sometimes around Easter, and and the the last lines of the chorus were, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And that's part of what Paul is saying here, that, that the Holy Spirit just keeps persuading us of the love of God. That's part of what he does. And that flood of God's love doesn't diminish when we're walking through the experiences of suffering. In fact, many Christ followers will tell you, and I will tell you from my own experience, that during times of trial in our lives, we're more aware of God's nearness. We're more aware of God's love. We're more aware of His grace. I look back on on my experience with cancer, although it was minor compared to most. But in that experience, when you don't know, you know how much longer you got, if you got any time at all, the nearness of God becomes very, very real. And, and you know, you hear people say, that was a hard experience, but I wouldn't have traded it for anything because God drew near to me. 
in that time. Well, let me wrap this up. Here's Paul's amazing assertion in these five verses. He's pointing to the fact that suffering starts a chain reaction that leads to mature hope. And as he does that, he shows that the benefits of our justification are not diminished by suffering. Instead, they're enhanced by it. They're enlarged by it. And what that means for us today is that if we face suffering, which will inevitably come into the life of every believer... If we face suffering with a clear grasp that we're justified only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, our joy in that grace will deepen and expand even through suffering. But here's the rub. If you face suffering without that confidence, if you're you're lacking that confidence... But instead, you're, you're approaching it with a mindset that you're justified by your works. Suffering will break you, not make you. It will take you down. See, self-justifiers are always insecure at a deep level because they know they're not living up even to their own standards, let alone God's. But they can't admit it so that when suffering comes... Their only conclusion is that they're being punished for their sins. Well, bad things are happening because God hates me. False. Lie. Lie from the pit of hell. And they can't take confidence from the love of God because they've chosen to believe that God's love for them is dependent on their performance. And suffering then shatters them. It drives them away from God rather than toward him. See, it's when we suffer that we discover in whom or in what we are really trusting and we're really hoping, whether it's God or ourselves. And today I want to just extend the invitation to you in the name of Jesus to transfer your trust from your performance, from yourself, from your morality, from your goodness, from your religion, to Christ. I'll never get over Jesus' last words on the cross. You've heard me say this over and over again if you've been here any length of time, but I just I can't get over it. That when Jesus died, as he died, he said, it is finished. It is finished. And the expression literally means paid in full. Jesus said, paid in full. All, of, all, all the debt of sin of mankind is paid in full. See, when, when you're attempting to justify yourself, the operative word is do. I got to do. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do the other thing. I got to keep doing. Get into some deep do-do that way. But when you transfer your trust to Christ and you let him justify you by his grace, not through your merit, not because you're so good, but simply because he is gracious, when you let him justify you by grace through faith, the operative word is done. It's done. And that's what Jesus said on the cross. He said, it's done, it's over. End of story. And what Christ did on the cross, God then accepted as the full and final payment for all of your sin. 
And then to prove that fact, he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And he's coming again. So in the name of Jesus today, I want to invite you to turn away from the constant doing to the done, to put your trust in Christ and let him save you and let him give you that confidence that enables you to walk through this life and know that this isn't the end of the story. Let's pray. Lord, today I do pray for those who may be here who have not yet done that transfer of trust from themselves, their own performance, their own morality, their own religion, their own self-styled righteousness to the only righteousness that's offered to us that you offer through faith in your Son, Christ. And Lord, to that today they would say, I don't maybe understand all of this, but I do know this, that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. I'm in need of someone that would bridge the gap between me and God, that would reconcile me to God and to know that Christ is the one. Thank you that uh, even though this life is hard, it's meaningful. And that uh, the end of this life will not be the end of the story for those who have trusted in you. May this be the day that some take that step. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.